episode 378 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views that we're expressing here today are not those of our clients, our institutions, our firms, our families, our pets, maybe not even ours, three weeks from today. Joining me, because this is a Tuesday, because we took Monday off, we get Paul Rosenzweig and Nick Weaver, Paul Rosenzweig from Red Branch Consulting, Nick Weaver from UC Berkeley, both of whom had conflicts on Mondays, but we're glad to have them here, and Matthew Hyman from uh, the Scalias Law School. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Why don't we jump right in? Paul, it was a big week for DHS uh, and others proposing cybersecurity rules for critical infrastructure. What's new? Well, the events of this week kind of remind me of Donald Rumsfeld. He said, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you want to have. And I think that you go to regulatory war with the regulatory authority you have, not the regulatory authority you wish you had. Uh, unbeknownst to you know most people, DHS has long had uh, nascent and underutilized regulatory authority over the rail industry and the pipeline industry. And in light of the increasing cyber threats to those critical infrastructures, they've trotted them out now. And they're going to impose upon infrastructure subject to their jurisdiction reporting requirements for breaches of security. In some ways, they're front-running pending congressional bills that would have similar sorts of reporting requirements. And the details of the announced rules have are highly contentious and have yet to be fully played out. If they issue them using an emergency authority, they'll of course have to go back and go through some form of APA notice and comment at some point in order to validate their choices. And it may and the whole controversy may be mooted by those congressional acts if Congress ever gets to pass a bill. But the bottom line is pretty clear. Consistent with almost everything else that we've seen in the Biden administration, they are moving to more aggressively use what existing regulatory authorities they have to impose obligations on infrastructure to protect against ransomware or other sorts of cyber intrusions. This is part and parcel of a piece with a, a kind of much broader and uh, thorough kind of set of activities. That oh, and it looks as though what uh, there's really two sets of, of regs going on here. One is regs for uh, everybody that TSA has jurisdiction over, the airports, the railroads, and they're pretty modest, right? You have to have a, a CISO, essentially. You have to have a, you have to disclose hacks to the government and you have to have a recovery plan. Only the disclosure of the hacks is really a, a, a big deal for anybody who's responsible. Uh, so uh, nonetheless, you're right. The rail industry got really bent out of shape kind of surprisingly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the rail industry contended that they've been, they've been perfect with their own voluntary guidelines for the last 20 years. And why should anybody want them to conform to a regulatory mandate? Of course, that's probably what the pipeline industry would have said the day before the Colonial Pipeline ransomware intrusions last year or earlier this year. To be honest with you, I have some sympathy with the general view that yeah, regulatory mandates are mostly cost with not so much benefit. But as you say, you know, the structural ones about op operations are have a CISO that if you don't have one of those, you're almost per se negligent in, in, in lawyer speak in these days. And so I, I don't think that there's any obligation to that. And my sympathy provided that the, you know, perhaps we'll talk about the details of the reporting requirements later, but my sympathy for a reporting requirement that is properly structured, yeah, I'm not too worried about that either. So long as the trigger is not too quick and not, and the bar isn't too low, that's good. That's good transparency. And, and as Good conservatives, I support it's, transparency it's, it's, most it, of the time. It's anyway. not as though they haven't gotten used to the idea that they need to be able to do this because they've had to report breaches of personal data. And it's really up to the hacker whether they go after personal data or something else. So you have to treat every intrusion as potentially a, a reportable event. So, I, I, Actually, Stuart, your point makes one really useful thing, which is that the main complaint against data breach laws has always been 
the multiplicity of, of 50 different states and all. And most of the industry subject to data breach notification has been advocating strongly for a uniform federal law so that they have one size only across the nation. And, and that has been the traditional Republican view for many years. And here we are with a Biden Democratic administration giving other industries exactly what they want, a one-size-fits-all federal... Yeah, well, maybe. I'm not sure it's going to... We'll see what the, the, the law does. But you're right, there's going to be this reporting requirement. Interestingly, I thought the pipeline regs, which are much more detailed, lots of requirements there, including patching, regular patching and the like, that also got some pushback, maybe not as emotional as the rail industry, but I do think it is fair to say if you don't distinguish between IT systems and operational systems when you set up things like a patch requirement, you really run the risk that you're going to bring the whole system down. The operational systems are not designed to be taken down and patched and put back up again all the time. That's a really good but it, But the flip of it is also quite interesting, which is that the older industries have mer have not distinguished between those systems in their own configurations, that the OT and the IT kind of converge with each other. We saw that, or possibly saw that in the pipeline, in the colonial pipeline itself. And so, so to some degree, that lack of distinction in the regulations I took to be a reflection of the legacy structures of, the, of some of the industries. And though I, I don't know anything at all about the rail industry, if I had to guess, I would be willing to put down a great deal of money that they too suffer from that legacy commingling and, and haven't really invested the capital in disaggregating their two systems yet. Yeah, quite possibly. If you want to know what can go wrong, though, when you take stuff down to patch it, we'll talk about uh, Facebook's week <laughs> shortly. But Matthew, I, uh, TSA is not, uh, and DHS, not the only folks who are getting into the, let's take the authority we have and see what we can do with it on cybersecurity. Justice is going to go after contractors. And it wasn't exactly clear to me how this was going to relate to cybersecurity, except that I assume that what they're going to do is say that if you don't live up to the obligations, the new obligations to report hacks as a contractor, we will charge you with false claims, which is a civil war statute that gets revived every 20 years, and which interestingly had the possibility of people turning in their employers for failure to, to act. I think that's the biggest reason uh, that DOJ is putting this emphasis on the False Claims Act, because if you live in the healthcare industry, for example, just how significant a False Claims Act claim can be. And as you said, Stuart, it empowers any whistleblower in an organization to bring an action. And for those of our listeners that don't spend their time thinking about the False Claims Act, it works like this. Someone that's called a relator under the law, but it's essentially a whistleblower, files a lawsuit, and then they hope that the a U.S. attorney district office is interested and sort of picks up the ball and runs with it to pursue the claim against whoever the scoff law may be. And so when you're talking about those kinds of cases, they tend to be very long. They tend to be very expensive to get out of. The government's entitled to three times their loss, plus running of $5,500 to $11,000 for every false claim submitted. So imagine that you've been invoicing the government for years on a monthly basis. You do the numbers and it can be a very steep bill. Yeah, so it's... It a couple of things that are interesting about this it used to be that if you lasted three years as a CISO, you were doing pretty good, and five was amazing. Uh, now, uh, every CISO has a kind of retirement plan built in. He can keep track of all the things that weren't uh, reported and to go, uh, go to, this is the other thing that I think is interesting, there's a whole industry that will support whistleblowers in and bring these lawsuits for them and reward them with a piece of what they get. So the False Claims Act would give a piece of the government's recovery to the uh, relator, uh, and you have to sign over most of it in order to get the help from the people who actually uh, pursue the litigation. But there's there's a, an, a whole industry around bringing these claims. So when justice says we're interested, there are a lot of well-to-do people who prick up their ears and say, oh, I'm interested. If you bring me a, an unreported breach, I might uh, uh, help you bring the lawsuit. 
Absolutely. There's a very robust plaintiff's bar and a whole array of sort of support industry for folks that feel they have a False Claims Act to bring against a large institution. And so I think this is justice just recognizing that this has been really effective in the healthcare space and other highly regulated spaces or government contractors, certainly in the defense space. And so why not apply that to cybersecurity risk? So by the time the, the House and Senate actually pass a Cyber Incident Reporting Act, a lot of people are already going to be subject to cyber incident reporting requirements uh, because of what the government has done. Nonetheless, there's, there's still a considerable fight over what ought to be in this incident reporting bill, which has a lot of bipartisan support. There's a bill that's clearly been designated in the House. And now there are two bills coming through, one from Intel and one from Homeland Security. The tougher one is from Intel, but we just got to see the uh, the Homeland Security bill. Paul, what can you say about uh, this bill, recognizing that it's going to have to be compromised with the, the other one? No, I, I mean, so so I, I let me, rather than nitpick it, let me pick the two things that I think are going to be the the pieces that will generate the most discussion. Uh, the first is the time frame. Some of the bills require reporting on a time frame as short as 24 hours after awareness. The Which guarantees you're going to be um, reporting four or five times because you won't know anything much after 24 hours. Right. And almost everybody who practices in this field thinks that's mm-hmm. too short. You know, whether they're the CISOs who think that they probably need something like 72 hours to at least get a decent handle on a breach, or the lawyers who think that they need two <laughs> or three weeks to investigate the breach before before they want right. to say a word about it. The it, it is also notable that internal U.S. government requirements are, are at the 72-hour level for breaches by, that one agency needs and to And that's where Homeland Security is. They're, they're so, at 72. Right. So I think that's going to be... Yeah, you know, seventy. So the first piece of this is going to be a a compromise around that. The second piece will be a question of what what it is that constitutes a a breach. Are we going to talk about something reasonably believed to be a breach, or uh, demonst- Yeah, or will the trigger be a more forensically detailed and accurate assessment? There, I think that the end result will probably err on the side. Of, of more disclosure. There'll be some form of reasonable belief or knowledge requirement that will be less than perfect knowledge, but more than, you know, we've got a flicker on one of our, on, on one of our sensors that says we're being scanned sorts of thing. And then the last piece that I will say, which is, which is for our listeners as a practitioner thing, which is I think the most interesting question that's going to happen inside corporations is, who gets to use the B word now? Well, who will be the authorized internal corporate person who gets right. to declare a breach? Because if the lawyers uh, are going to tell them, suspect- you will never say the word breach until we uh, acknowledge it. It's, it's an incident. If I were general counsel, I would say that as well. But if yeah. I were a CISO and I took seriously my job, I wouldn't necessarily take right. that requirement because I take seriously my legal obligations and I take seriously my understanding of what breach, even, you know, with the fuzziness of forensics and not being sure. So, so one thing that this portends is a lot of in-house discussion about what that means. And then of course, anything like that brings with it huge risks uh, of liability down the road, insurance claims, shareholder derivative suits, you name it. It's just gonna, gonna be it's gonna it be wrong. just like uh, all the medical shows where somebody is they're sitting in a conference room and somebody says, Okay, I'm gonna call it time of breach is twelve fifteen PM by because it has so many consequences just as a death does. I, I thought the most interesting yeah. difference between the bills is and this is uh, Senator Warner's gripe about the Homeland Security bill. There's actually no penalty built into the the Homeland Bill for failure to report the breach. Now, we know now that the entire industry that does false claims relator actions is waiting to bring on the penalties. 
But I think Senator Warren is right to say, gee, shouldn't we actually say there's a fine? Otherwise, the Homeland Security could say, well, you didn't report, but all we can say is shame on you. Well, I guess I saw that and I was less persuaded because I was, I'm quite confident that there are lots of enforcement models outside of the administrative law fine model that will generate ample penalties ranging from shareholder derivative suits and SEC enforcement actions to uh, uh, negligence and liability actions. I, I, I Okay, that's interesting. You're right. Most of the people who are subject to these things are subject to some other regulatory authority. And there is a provision that says uh, in the bill, uh, the Homeland Bill, just turn them into their usual regulator. And so what this really is a subterranean fight over whether usual regulators will have complete control over uh, cybersecurity breach penalties or whether Homeland will get to establish an overall enforcement policy. And that's an interesting bureaucratic fight. We'll see how it plays out. Okay, believe it or not, the administration is not done coming up with creative uh, ways to read the law and work its will on the economy. Nick and Matthew, there's a whole bunch of cryptocurrency news. It looks as though the White House is talking about, apart from their 30-country consultation, they are looking for a possible executive order on cryptocurrency. And the Justice Department has announced they've got a cryptocurrency enforcement team, which just means that this is an industry they really want to prosecute if they can. Where does What does all this add up to? From my point of view, really good news. So in the details on the White House stuff, it's a focus where the National Security Council is involved. And my opinion on cryptocurrency enabling ransom. Likewise, from a financial viewpoint, it really is uh, financial asbestos. There's, it's provably zero sum, and it's just a great hunking sink. However, the other thing that really seems to be has not creative interpretation of regulation, but actually enforcing long existing regulation. So the DOJ spinning up is really, let's put it, a target-rich environment. The amount of blatant criminality driving the cryptocurrency space with like Tether, which is a combination of Liberty Reserve and a wildcat bank. It's just so obviously criminal, and it was obviously criminal when it was $2 billion, and now that it's $60 billion, it, come on, it's so many red flags. Likewise, although the headline is the chair of the SEC says we can't ban crypto without a act of Congress, at the same time he says that almost everything is a security under the Howey test, and if you make Howey great again, it actually does a really nice job of tamping down on what is basically a mass securities fraud. So I'm going to read the decision to create the cryptocurrency enforcement team as Lisa Monaco saying, I kind of resonate to Nick Weaver's frequency. There's a lot of law here and we might as well just enforce it criminally. Although I'm guessing that more than anything, they want to go after the tumblers and the mixers. Yeah, doing that already. There have been a couple of prosecutions already of various Tumblr operators, so they've been able to go after those already. And I think this is just formalizing sort of the impulses of the administration. And, and I don't, and I, from a law enforcement and a justice organization point of view, I, I give, I'll tip my cap to Lisa Monaco on this one. I think justice tends to act with greater alacrity when it sees stuff going haywire in the marketplace than most of our other governmental agencies and pairing up the money laundering team with CSIPs to figure out how to go after crypto scoff laws makes perfect sense to me. And, And this is what you know, this is what justice does. When organized crime was running rampant, they came up with task force. When after 9-11, we reorganized the Justice Department to focus on counterterrorism. And so this is what justice does. And I think it's the right thing to do. How they'll use it, I don't know. But I agree with Nick. There's 
they don't need new authorities or regulations to get done what they want to get done. They just need a focus. And apparently that's what the deputy attorney general has given the criminal. All right. Well, creativity remains part of the uh, theme of this because Paul pointed to the MagnaChip case where CFIUS has taken a pretty creative approach to its jurisdiction. The MagnaChip is a, it's a South Korean chip company that does almost no business in the United States. And yet, CFIUS said when a Chinese private equity uh, firm tried to buy MagnaChip, CFIUS said, oh no, we're taking jurisdiction here. Paul, how did they justify? So it really is a fascinating change. For many years, CFIUS used its jurisdiction only it was caveated by the phrase to the extent that the activity of a company actually affects American interstate commerce. So it it pretty much eschewed regulation of people whose economic activities were exclusively outside of the United States, but who might have connections to the United States sufficient to satisfy the traditional personal jurisdiction requirements of American law. Maybe they had a corporate headquarters here. Maybe they were listed on the New York Stock Exchange, but they, in addition to being listed elsewhere, but they did all their business overseas. And Sifia said that wasn't our business. That changed with the MagnaChip case. MagnaChip, as you said, is a South Korean chip manufacturer who, as far as I understand from the record, does absolutely no actual commercial business here in the United States. It sells its chips exclusively in Asia and Europe, and it was going to be purchased by a Chinese, essentially a Chinese private equity firm, though they don't have private equity, so I'm not exactly sure what that means in Chinese law. And as far as I can see from the record, the only connections that MagnaChip has here are that it is in fact listed on the New York Stock Exchange, and it has a Delaware Shell company that owns other uh, companies around the globe. It does no sales here, but as part and parcel of the efforts to clamp down on technology transfers to China, uh, the CFIUS committee, and it seems like this happened, started under the Trump administration, did something relatively rare, which is pulled in to the committee, an unnotified transaction, one of which they became aware from somewhere else, and has direct has told MagnaChip that it will recommend that the president block the the activity. Now, there are two final points that are really interesting for me. The first of these is that it's another instance of I think President Trump's actions moving the Overton window, which is to say that they wouldn't have ever done this under a Democratic administration in the first instance. But by all appearances, the Biden administration is continuing an activity that had been begun by the Trump administration and using this as a as a lever against China. So that's the kind of the first point that I would make. The second point I would make is that I'm not sure where this goes. I don't know how valuable it is to MagnaChip to be listed on the stock exchange and have a kind of fictitious cell company in 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 Delaware. So this may prove to be a cutting off your nose to spite so your face. So here's my theory on that. My theory on that is that the U.S. government is doing this first because chips, right? Any chip transfer to, to China is bad from the government's point of view. It is about, these are chips that mostly control the screen on your phone, if I understand it right. And the but the other thing that is crucial behind the scenes is I don't think the South Korean government was enthusiastic about this, and it really helps to have top cover from the U.S. government. So now that the South Korean government can say to uh, uh, MagnaChip, yeah, we don't think you should do it either. I, and they have plenty of authority. So the legal problem gets solved in South Korea and the political diplomatic problem gets solved by the U.S. going first. That's, a, that's an guess. interesting speculation. I wouldn't have thought of that. The, other, the only other thing that I would note is that there is a downside to this, which is obvious, which is that every time the U.S. moves to expand the extraterritorial effect of its economic laws, besides... Uh, potentially diminishing the attractiveness of the Americas and marketplace, we do obviously invite other countries to reciprocate and express the French or German or Chinese extraterritorial economic laws in ways 
that we kind of we lose the we lose the ability to object to quite as much. So what Treasury would say to that is that they are now under FIRMA, the new law that was passed in 2018, and as a matter of commitment from this administration, are working very hard to coordinate their inward investment policy with other Western countries, and especially countries like Australia and the UK, but I think Japan and South Korea as well. Less clear that they've got the same kind of relationship with France and uh, Germany, which are feeling a little left out. But I'm guessing that they're making a big effort to try to keep everybody more or less okay with what the U.S. is doing, because they're going to need them uh, yeah, if that, they want to present point, a united That's an interesting point, but it kind of gets back to the first point, which is that I'm less convinced than you are that was how the Trump administration approached. No, of course not. That, that, that's how you break the Overton window is you just stop worrying about what other people think. But uh, I think this administration views themselves as cleaning up and salvaging the good stuff uh, while throwing out the bad stuff from the last administration in this area. And then mostly they've kept most of the policies. I agree. All right. I promised that we would talk about the Facebook outage, although I... Frankly, I'm not sure how interesting it is. It was out for a long time, and it was a kind of perfect storm of errors that meant that they had locked, not only closed their system down, but locked out all the security people who were supposed to restore it. Nick, can you tell us exactly what happened? The internet runs on a combination of bubblegum and bailing wire. And one of the key pieces of this bubblegum and bailing wire is what's known as the border gateway protocol, which is how computers basically say, this is how you find my systems. Facebook did an update to their routers and they basically said, oh, we don't exist anymore. And so this said to the rest of the internet that this subsection of the Facebook network doesn't exist anymore. Unfortunately, that subs the Facebook network is where Facebook keeps its DNS servers, which is another part of the bubblegum sequence that turns names like Facebook into internet addresses. And so basically Facebook goes offline. Now, normally this would be a fairly easy thing to fix. Screw-ups like this happen all the time. You go into the machine room, you reset the routers, reconfigure it, and it comes back. Except that Facebook, like so many Silicon Valley companies, believes in eating their own dog food. So everything in Facebook runs on Facebook, including their control mechanisms, to get into the machine room to reboot the routers or get into the data center to rebuke the routers, including the communication channels you use to tell your boss, oh crap, we need to reboot the routers. And basically they effectively lock their own keys in their car. Going forward, this won't happen again because Facebook's networking team will now have grinders and bolt cutters so that they can bypass the card key locks. Well, there's a place for that. It, it, it does seem like I, Paul, is there any broader lesson that we can draw from? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to kind of push back on your idea that it wasn't that big a deal. I think it wasn't really that big a deal here in the United States because all we have in, all it did in the United States is shut down one of several social information media channels for a few hours. And everybody went on to Twitter or, or something else for those t at a time. But one of the things that, that I experienced because I live in Costa Rica part of the year is how dependent people are on Facebook in Costa Rica, but I imagine other services elsewhere for day-to-day -day actual services because Facebook has really eaten the world. In Costa Rica, for example, most businesses do not have independent websites. They provision Facebook pages with all of the information about who they are, where they are, how you can get to them, what you want. In addition, in Costa Rica, given the weakness of the traditional cell phone service things, the single most dominant means of communication is WhatsApp. And yeah, I use that to talk to my gardener. We don't use phones, we use WhatsApp. And that too was down for six hours. And, and so in a country like Costa Rica, and I have a friend who lives in Benin, Africa, he told me it was the same thing there. And I imagine it was 
very much across the globe, at least in the Western or, or quasi-Western nations, uh, the Facebook outage had a lot deeper. Imagine AT&T or T-Mobile going out and you get a better sense of it. And so it was really quite a lesson for me as much on the dependency on Facebook of the developing world that yeah. I, I hadn't really realized before. And you may not notice it, but it's quite possible that the fire department or the, the, the police are heavily reliant on these same tools. And if, it, if things went out, they must have really been sweating bullets. Well, you, you make a good point because we do have a 911 service in Costa Rica, again, the country I know, but the best way to contact the fire department is through their WhatsApp. Yeah. Because you get directly to, whereas 911 goes through the bureaucratic system of collecting the response, and whereas I can WhatsApp the fire department in my hometown and yeah. tell them, fire. So, so last question on this. Uh, do you think, do you get a sense that people in Costa Rica are mad at Facebook over this and determined to do something about it or just shrugging and saying, well, it was better than the phone and it still is. I'm sorry it went out. That's a great question. It happened so recently that I don't think that there really has been a resolution. I know that amongst the people I interact with on a daily basis, there uh, was a sense of resignation, that there was yeah. no other alternative. Okay, But I'm not a hundred percent convinced that there won't be some broader government response. All right. Well, I, I want to ask you one other question. Uh, it, it's inspired by a, a, a story in the Post about uh, the return of hacktivism, Twitch having all of its source code to exposed, Epic having all of the right-wing services and subscribers that it had aggregated exposed a and that the post said, gee, this is a real problem. It, is this the revival of hacktivism? A lot of skepticism about that as well. Uh, what's your thinking on this? We have seen, I think, an upsurge in quasi-activist hacktivism, a resurgence of it, particularly targeting the conservative media outgrowths of post-Trumpist life. Parlor was whacked. Did they get Gab? I can't remember, but yeah. I, I think I, they got Gab, Epic. These are all, and then likewise, the Pandora Papers, which are basically a leak that is, confirms for many progressives what they've always believed, that namely that 500 rich people run the entire world and hide all their money. And hey, wait a minute. That's stuff. a Trump belief. The progressive's not allowed to believe that. <laughs> well, but I am not so sure that it's really a resurgence so much as a reattending re re to it, that these things continued during the, during the last few years. But it does kind of raise a whole host of questions about the vitality and utility of reporting on leaked information. I think, frankly, you know, the Pandora Papers type of leaks fall in a different category because they are curated by investigative journalists who kind of assess their veracity, track down what's happening and give context to it. And so I personally value that more than the huge data dumps of everybody who's ever had a login account on Grindr or, or on Getter or on or the Epic leaks. That's my personal take and that it's, I acknowledge it being a difficult line to draw as to what is journalism, what is not. For me, that makes some sense. Yeah, I, although I, the hypocrisy of journalists on this one is staggering. After Hillary Clinton's emails and the DNC's emails were put out, the Washington Post was flagellating itself. And the Marty Baron, who's like, what, the editor-in-chief, said, before we report on hacked or leaked information, we're going to have a conversation about whether it's newsworthy, whether it's authentic, whether we can determine its provenance. And then if we publish a story about it, we will emphasize what we don't know about the source and how it may fit into a foreign or domestic influence operation. And then they go and publish the Pandora Papers, and there is not a lick of discussion about any of those topics. It almost certainly was some kind of organized intrusion because these are, they're pulled from 14 different services that will uh, help you 
set up offshore accounts located all over the world. And I don't, I can't think of any other way that data would leak out. Nobody is talking about exactly who it might've been, except for some very loose and not particularly responsible suggestions that it was the CIA or NSA just looking at the targets, which I don't find completely persuasive. So it, it is true that the journalists are going to curate this which means they're going to fit it into a narrative they're comfortable with, which is probably, you know, orange man bad, Russia bad, China probably bad, rich people bad, progressives good. All right, two or three more things. I, th I thought this story was interesting. Nick wanted to cover it, and I agree with him. Uh, the, the, this is a guy who showed people how to unfollow everything on Facebook because it frees you from the news feed, which otherwise you're going to be forced to look at. You can unfollow everybody that you look, that, that you deal with on uh, Facebook, mean that you are unfriending them. It just means that you're not following them. And once you've gotten it down to zero, you can go to their sites to find out what they're doing, as opposed to having Facebook pretend that they're going to tell you what your friends are doing, but actually tell you whatever it is they think will keep you on the site longest. Nick, I was a little surprised that, uh, that Facebook could uh, well, there are things that allowed them to do this. First of all, the person in question is in Europe, UK specifically. Right, which makes it harder for them to, to bring a lawsuit. More precisely, it makes it easier for Facebook to bring a lawsuit because the UK has a loser pays on civil suits. And so you can't just right. pro bono lawyer up. And, and the other thing is this right. is a real reminder of Facebook problem, and that is the newsfeed, that Facebook wants you to stay on the site and view ads, and the way they do that is the newsfeed. And any of Facebook's root problems are from this engagement model, this engagement business model. They've only managed one genocide slash ethnic cleansing. I think they want to go for a few more before they figure out how to fix the problem, if they can. So I, 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 I'm interested in this in part because I've never had a news feed because inadvertently I only follow like five or six people and I, I just go straight to the collection of those people and look to see what's new. I, this makes me realize I've completely missed the Facebook experience because I don't see the newsfeed. Uh, and I have to say, it makes me less mad at Facebook. I just go there. It's nice. I see the, uh, the news and I leave. But I, I, it makes me a really crappy customer. For yes. Them. Facebook's license to print money is from the newsfeed. And anything that attacks that model is going hacked whole hog. I think their biggest problem, however, is they've just Streisand affected themselves. And so I'm willing to bet that somebody in the U.S. is going to recreate the Firefox extension, Chrome extension, to unfollow everybody. And it becomes a much more popular. I also think this might become... Something. Yeah, I think that's right. There would there would be, wouldn't there be, wouldn't there be an antitrust problem with saying you're not allowed to unfollow people? No, it's that this is a terms of service violation according to Facebook, and they'll threaten lawsuits. But in the U.S., what'll happen is the EFF or somebody else will pro bono represent you, and basically Facebook is not necessarily going to win that suit, but the whole point was never to win the suit, but to get the extension author to withdraw his extension. Yeah, it's apparently very hard. You have to do it one at a time. You kind of go through and find one person, unfollow them, find another person, unfollow them. And until you get to zero, you're going to have a newsfeed. So I, uh, and it's still, it's, it's a bit of a pain in the neck to say, now, if I want to find out what my friends are doing, I have to go to their page to see. And that, that gives you a lot of control, but it means you have to take responsibility for remembering who it is and when you want to go check on them. So uh, uh, you can see why a newsfeed might've been a good idea, but now that it's been taken over by Facebook for its own purposes, it's less good idea. There's nothing worse than having to remember 
who your friends are. Right, exactly. Or the, uh, uh, or to say, oh my goodness, I haven't checked that person in six months. And then you have to embarrassedly admit that you didn't see their post from six months ago. All right, uh, Paul, there was an article uh, in Bloomberg that suggested that, there, that the AI hype cycle is bottoming out and that people are starting to focus on just how bad artificial intelligence is, including in places where we expected it to be good. We Obviously, uh, Elon Musk thought that he'd, uh, he'd be in the backseat of his car permanently by now, and he's not. And even the, the idea that they're going to replace, AI will replace radiologists in searching for lung cancer and the like, uh, is drawn into question by this article. It's, it makes you wonder, have we been the victim of AI hype? Well... Yeah, we are our own victims, right? I, I think, I, I still believe that AI analysis has great promise for a lot of really routinized things. But as you pointed out, one of the areas where one actually suspected it would be more successful by now would be in routine observations of radiology, yeah. x-rays in hospitals to identify tumors or evidences of infection or things like that. And a recent and the Bloomberg article you referred to referred back to a deeper study in nature, which essentially says we're not there yet. The error rate is still too great for AI to be used in, in a clinical setting to do a medical uh, evaluation and diagnosis. And that is a surprising result. I personally am not surprised that cars aren't driving yet. The, right. the car environment is wildly unconstrained, deeply chaotic, with lots of chaotic actors in it, ranging from other drivers to dogs and birds. So I wouldn't be that surprised that's not working. And the other you know place where it's failing is, for example, in Facebook, in, in fighting uh, bad, bad information, because, of course, there it's facing an adaptive adversary, the human who just changes enough in the algorithm to in the post to get past the prohibitions. Yeah, I'm with but you on that. Would, would have seemed to me to have been a, a non-adaptive adversary that we could learn, kind of like chess or even Go. And so it is surprising to me. And my prognosis, though, is not as grim as yours. I know you're much more of an AI skeptic than I am, Stuart. But my prognosis is that I don't think... I, I, I think that what we're learning is that AI is good for fewer things than we thought, but it's not, but in the things where it's going to work out like radiology, I think it's just more a matter of time than a matter of something or other. Could I easily be. wants the, to jump in. The hype cycle is notorious for having a valley of disillusion just before you discover the, the things that the hyped technology is really good for. I'd like to add in as the resident academic who wants to see AI nuclear winter, Rather than just AI winter, because because they'll be they'll, because you want money to go to other fields, yeah. is that right? Including yours, of course. <laughs> it's that what the AI really is machine learning, which is pattern matcher, where you don't understand what the pattern is you're looking for and you're trying to extract it. The problem is once you understand the problem, a trained radiologist understands semantically what they're looking for they're going to have real advantages. And that's why I think the radiology has proven to be a disappointment is because it isn't just a pattern matching problem. It's a semantic extraction and then pattern matching. Likewise, Tesla is going with an AI first model that will never work. So here's a example. You've seen the videos of Tesla calling the full moon a yellow traffic light. This says that they aren't first trying to understand the scene semantically before AI, because with a car, you're moving along, you do this computation called optical flow, you see that the moon hasn't moved as you've moved along, and now you ignore it because it's just a point at infinity. And so they are clearly not even doing the most basic try to understand the problem first. They're just throwing patterns at it. And that's a recipe for a thing where you don't understand what you're matching. So let me ask about matching uh, because it's got a, there's a legal connection here. Uh, Google has been responding to search requests that ask for the contents of 
searches done by ordinary people. The most obvious being if somebody was uh, uh, killed in a, a neighborhood or because they're a witness in a case, you would check to say who in the day before this person was killed, looked up their address, uh, who has also looked up the purchase of guns or something of the sort. Uh, so you're looking for a small number of people in a particular area who conducted a search that seems highly relevant to the crime. Google has been responding to those and giving the data to the law enforcement, often under NDA, at least for a, a, a time. Nick, what could go wrong here? Well, if you don't construct your query well, you're going to have a huge amount of false positives. And likewise, it's morally, it's a reminder that if data exists, it can be attacked with a warrant or a subpoena or 702 legal process or any one of a half dozen mechanisms. And Google is retaining this data individualized for as long as they can. And then are suddenly shocked when they find you have geofence warrants and search warrants for who search for stuff and bet that there's been advertising warrants. So who viewed this webpage at this time interval is one that we've seen warrant, a warrant issued to USA Today for that USA Today fought and the FBI then said, okay, we're not going to fight this. We got this information some other way. My bet it was they called Google with the same thing and go, Wu saw an ad impression from this webpage. Yeah, I would have thought that, that would be the way to do it. So my impression with the geofenced warrants is that Google plays a role which they would say it shows the dangers to some minds and the advantages to others of compromising with the uh, with law enforcement. Google will say, you asked for the results of this people who were in this neighborhood with these characteristics and 60 different people, and we're not going to give you 60 different names. So we're going to, you're going to have to find a way to narrow this search, but we'll give you some information that you can use and you can say, yeah, exclude people with that characteristic. And I would have thought you could do the same thing with keyword with the warrants for searches in in Google. You'd say, okay, I want everybody who looked up this address in the week before. And then you discover that it, for one reason or another, there's too many people and you're both intruding on privacy and you're making a lot of work for law enforcement. So Google says, we won't do that. You're going to have to give us some other parameters that get it down to a smaller number. Yeah, and it's probably a matter of Google's lawyers, and neither Google nor the DOJ really want to fight this out in court in public because uh, it's really useful to law enforcement to have these tricks, and it's really useful for the Google to not have people know that they're collecting all this information. Fair enough. No, you're right. They don't. They do not have an interest in doing this in public, and so far they have not been doing it in public. All right. Just a couple of other uh, quick hits. There was a story in the paper that Google sent out warnings to people saying you may be the subject of a APT government attack on your data. They sent fourteen thousand of them. I was kind of thrilled to discover that I made the cut, and the, the GRU thinks I'm one of the fourteen thousand most dangerous people to the GRU. I, uh, that's a, a, a tribute to our circulation inside uh, Russia for this uh, Cyber Law Podcast. I, and they recommend, I, they indicated, if you read enough of these, how the attacks were being done. Looks as though they were, in some cases, sending PDFs, in some cases, sending poisoned Word documents, and Google would change the nature of the warning about what you should do with Word documents or what you should do with PDFs, depending on the kind of malware you'd been sent. I thought it was, it was interesting. Google has this program in which they say you can lock up your account using a, a thumb drive or a, that's not a thumb drive, but it's, it's security key. a flash drive. Yeah, security key. Uh, it's not a flash drive. It's a device that does cryptographic authentication and it has a side consequence of you cannot be fished. If Podesta used a security key, we would have had presence. 
Yeah, that's probably right. And, and I thought that was interesting. Google has been, uh, Google gave me one of these keys a long time ago, and I, I, I have since bought my own. But what I was struck by then, uh, and I raised with them, and they have, they just shrugged. As I said, really, this your, your the security key you gave me is made by a Chinese company in China. The YubiKey is made in the U.S. Why is it that you're doing this with China? And they just said, we think it's secure. It was very odd. Yeah, it's amazing how cheap multi-billion-dollar companies are. <laughs> that's I'm sure that's the answer. If they're going to give it away, they would prefer not to be paying YubiKey prices. Uh, all right, I met. Hey, they're giving it away. Give, cut them some slack. They, they, they don't really have to do that. They could just say, we recommend that you go out and buy one. But they know that only half of the people they recommended it to would do that. All right, last thing while we're talking about uh, government hacks. The SolarWinds hackers, we now have some indication of what they were looking for, Matthew. And it is kind of, I thought it was interesting. Uh, this is an attack where the hackers seem to have their... Search terms were recovered, and one of the search terms was sanctions. Yep. In particular, sanctions against Russia. They were also searching for counterintelligence efforts against Russia. And the other topic that came up was how the U.S. was responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. So it further verifies or gives credence to uh, U.S. intelligence who believes that the source of the solar winds hacks were, was Russia's SVR or folks affiliated with the... Uh... Well, it also, it, it's kind of nice. It, it suggests that uh, sanctions policy really matters to them, and it only really matters if it's doing them some damage. So it, it's kind of indirect validation, not the kind you want, but it, it, indirect validation for the use of sanctions uh, to influence Russian behavior. Yes. There's nothing worse for, I guess, a Russian oligarch or uh, part of the power elite to not be able to access real estate in Manhattan or wherever they might want to be. So yes, a stuck pig always squeals, Stuart. There we go. Okay, and, or hacks. Thanks, Matthew, Paul, Nick, for joining us. I'm going to close off. If people want to send us comments, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com will do it. Please leave us a rating and an entertaining review, even if you have to abuse us. We'll read it if it's entertaining. Thanks also to Weissman Sound Design for the music. This has been episode 378 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson.